I'm turned on. All right, praise the Lord. Are you glad to be here tonight? Thank the Lord. It's good to be in the house of God. I've got a uh, scripture, guys, that I want you to put up for me, and we're just going to leave it up. Don't worry about anything else. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 12. And I'm going to read that to you, and I'm sure they're going to shoot it up there for you in just a flash. And, and that's what we're going to leave up there because I, I want you to just kind of keep this in your mind uh, throughout this night. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 12. The Bible simply says this. It's very pertinent. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall. I would be safe in saying to you this evening that no one among us is invincible. No one among us is above and beyond stumbling. We're all human. We're all flesh and blood. And we're all vulnerable to the snares and the tricks of the devil. I was thinking coming down the road this evening. Those of you that were here last night, you remember we were talking about a church that I pastored. One Sunday morning we had a young man came in with the longer hair. You remember that last night? Dressed very poorly. Well, to carry on a little bit more with that story, that young man and his wife got saved. He was a floor sweeper in a cotton mill. That was his job. Very poor income. But as they progressed with God, as God blessed them, they began to improve. He went from a floor sweeper in just maybe a year's time to a loom fixer, which was a pretty good increase in money and a pretty prestigious job. While they were doing that, they began to save money for a down payment on a house. I'd been at the church two years, and we were having a dinner one Sunday and sitting on the front porch of the parsonage and sitting on car hoods and various places eating and talking in front of the church. And I looked around and I said, I'll tell you one thing. If I come back again, I won't be sitting on the front porch to have a church dinner. I said, we're going to build something. And one lady sitting there, she said, I agree with you. And if you come back, I'll give the first $1,000. I said, well, if you give $1,000, my wife will give $1,000. We went to the convention not knowing in those days what the outcome was going to be. But thank God, we did come back. And they did remind me about that. So with a lot of praying and some thought, I got up one Sunday morning and preached a message, and I shared with them in the message what we were planning on doing. We wanted to build a dining hall, a new kitchen, and five additional Sunday school rooms onto the back. Everybody got excited, but I said, I don't want to go in and, and have a big debt. 
So I need volunteers. I said, I've already got two $1,000 pledges. And as they stood in the front, different ones begin to come up saying, I'll give a thousand. We'll give a thousand. We'll do this. We'll do that. And we had just about run out of people that were going to give. I think we had about 10 or 12 up there that was giving a thousand and some lesser amounts. And I looked back and I saw these two kids talking to one another. And they got up, and just like they went to the altar, they came to the front, hand in hand. And they stepped over there, and I looked at him, and I wondered, you know, what are they going to do? And he said, Brother Shaw, we'll give $1,000. So after church, I got with him, and I talked with him. I said, now, Daniel, I said, partner, I know you're new and you've not been here a long time, and you know, you don't have to feel any pressure to do this if you guys can't afford it. He said, Brother Shaw, he said, ever since we got saved, we've been trying to save money for a down payment on a house. And he said, we got to talking, and we felt like if we give that money to God for his house, that when he gets ready, he'll give us a house that we need. And they gave it. And we were blessed. And needless to say, long story short, the church built the, church, or the extension. It was paid for. Everything was great. But here's another key note. Daniel went from being a loom fixer to a superintendent of the mill. He began to work at that capacity and then he decided he felt a call to begin to do taxes for ministers on the side because a minister's taxes are different than just the average person out there. Uh, you have different breaks, different things that you have to fill out and various things. It's viewed a little bit different. But he studied and prepared himself and he did minister's taxes. Then it got to going so big that he said he was going to quit the mill and he went to painting. He had three vans full of equipment. He had a crew for each van. They were going out to Atlanta and different places like that doing half a million dollar jobs at a time. He had a brand new two-story ranch house on several acres with horses all around it. He had a big new office complex that he had built and a warehouse that he could keep all of his paint supplies and everything in over there. He was going wide open and probably almost worth seven, $800,000 a year. God had truly blessed him. The Bible said, Wherefore let him that thinketh he stand, take heed, lest he fall. Daniel and his wife started getting so busy. He was gone here and gone there and doing this and doing that. And the first thing you know, they were having problems. And I had already moved on by now. 
and I was about 30 miles away at a church, and I got a phone call, and it was Daniel. Daniel was in the city prison, and he wanted to see me. And I went down to visit him. And when they finally let me in after a big rigmarole, they let me in. And I went into a little room, and there was a, a kind of a privacy thing there. And I sat down, and here they brought him in in his orange jumpsuit. His hair was just sticking up everywhere. He was pale looking, had circles under his eyes. And he come and he sat down, and I said, man, what are you doing here? He said, Brother Shaw, I'm here of my own accord. He said, I was the one that did wrong. He said, I got started fooling with cocaine. And he said, I thought I could handle it. I thought that I was man enough to control it, that I could keep it on an even keel. And he said, you know and I know that it got the best of me. He said, today, I don't have a business anymore. He said, I don't have a single vehicle. He said, I don't have an office. I don't have a, a, a warehouse. I don't have any equipment. I don't have a two-story ranch house. I don't have anything. My wife's gone. My kids are gone. I've got two pair of underwear to my name, and that's it. He said, every bit of it has been taken away. He said, the FBI came in. They did a sting. I was sitting in my office working. And he said, the first thing I know, they were on top of me with guns pointed. And he said, they carried me outside, told my secretary to go home. He said, they found cocaine, and they found it within a certain amount of distance from a loaded pistol. And he said, the combination is deadly. And he said, I don't know what they're going to do to me. And I thought about another young man that done the same thing. And there's just story after story of situations like this, Brother Murphy, that you could talk about. One young man, his wife was gone for a couple of weeks working. He was at home working his job by himself. Friday evening before she came home, some friends in the office told him, said, Jack, why don't you go out with us tonight? We're going to go out and drink. He said, I don't drink. They said, well, you don't have to drink. Just go with us. Be with us for a little while. He said, nobody's at home waiting on you. Come on and go with us. So Jack went with them. They sat around. They were drinking, and he felt a little uncomfortable in this setting, but they got to laughing. They got to joking and carrying on, and the first thing you know, Jack, was feeling kind of good and he glanced across the room and there was sitting a beautiful woman far beyond anyone that would ever ordinarily pay attention to him. And the funny thing was she kind of smiled at him when their eyes caught. And he turned away and he thought, man, I don't know her. And it went on, Brother Murphy, that night later and later and later and every once in a while, he'd glance over there. She was still looking at him. So after a while, the guy said, we're going home. We got to go. He said, well, I'm going to sit around, listen to the music for a little while. And so Jack remained behind. And 
Jack was sitting there and this young lady came walking over and sat down and it almost took his breath away. He couldn't believe that she really found him to be attractive. Long story short, without gory details, they went to a room that night. The next morning, Jack woke up. He felt very bad about what he had done. And he was trying to think, Brother Ken, how am I going to explain to this girl that I'm married, that I've got a child, that this can't go on? And he rolled over, and much to his surprise, she was gone. She wasn't there. Her clothes were gone. She had dressed and slipped out long before he had even woke up. And he thought, well, that ain't so bad. Said no obligations, no responsibilities. Never see her again in my life. Said this worked out pretty good. He got dressed. He went in the bathroom to the mirror to comb his hair. And there on the mirror in red lipstick it said, Welcome to the world of AIDS. And was underscored. Jack, mine just went crazy. He said, AIDS, AIDS. Man, this lady had AIDS. And he began to think, what's this going to do? What's this going to mean? I've got a wife. I've got a child. How am I going to tell them? What's this going to do to me? He went back in the bedroom. He plopped down in a big chair and he sat there contemplating, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And all of a sudden, he bursted out. And he said, of all people, how did I get here? Of all people, how did I get here? What he was saying is, I knew better than to do what I did. I knew better than to go down to that tavern and hang out with those guys. I knew better that when that lady started giving me the eye to pay any attention to her, I knew better than to go home or go to a room with her that night and slide into the bed. I knew better of all people. How did I get here? You know what? There's people all around this community tonight that does the same thing. They cry out, of all people, how did I get in this mess? Daniel said, of all people, how did this happen to me? I was saved. I was sanctified. I was filled with the Holy Ghost. I was a member of the church. I was prospering. I was doing good. It seemed like I had it all going in my favor of all people. How did I let it get like this? I'm going to tell you something, folks. The scripture says it all. Wherefore that thinketh he stand, take heed lest he fall. None of us are invincible. You say, Brother Saul, at my age, you don't have to worry about any of those things. I'm going to tell you something. It is a concept in the mind of young people that old people don't have to worry about the devil bothering them. I've got news for you, young folks. The devil works just as hard on them as he does on you. 
It may not be with the same things that bug you, but there are things uh, that he has devised, uh, that he has developed, uh, that torments uh, and works on them just as much as it does the 15, 16, and 17-year-old. And except we watch and pray, Mike, these things can get a hold of us regardless of our age. You say, oh, I can handle it. I, I can handle it. That's what young young man in Greenville, South Carolina told me when I went down to the ward that he was locked up in. Different case altogether. Uh, he lost his home. He lost everything. And let me tell you something. That's what the devil will do to you if you let him. He will rob you and strip you of everything that you've got. He'll take your dignity, he'll take your pride, he'll take your family, he'll take your health, he'll take your bank account, he'll take your home, he'll take everything. And worst of all, he gets a hold of your soul. He'll drag you to hell. Of all people, how do we get in these shapes? The Bible says Jesus over 20 one times said we have to watch and pray. It is expedient. I did a survey for the ministers intensive that we went around and taught over the state. And I was sharing with the pastors that according to Barner, this group that does all sorts of surveys and different things like that, They said that the average Christian prays one minute a day. Now that was shocking to me. That that for me that was hard to believe. But then when I look around and I see some of the standards that these folks live by and yet call themselves a Christian. Maybe it's not so shocking. I don't know. The world's concept of what a Christian is and and mine are very far apart and it seems to be getting farther apart all the time. But they said the average Christian prays one minute a day. Now I'm going to tell you something, my friend. That will not cut it. That will not do it. You cannot withstand uh, the problems and the onslaught and the war and the turmoil of the devil that's coming against you with a quick one minute prayer a day. Peter said, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour or destroy. He said, know this, that the devil's after every one of you. The devil wants your pastor. The devil wants your overseer. The devil wants the ministers. The devil wants the lay people. He wants the leader. He wants every one of you, from the youngest to the oldest in this room. He wants you. And my friend, I'm going to tell you something. He is working very hard and very diligent on a plan right now to stumble you up 
or to trick you up and to overtake you. Don't you think he's not? He knows where you are. He knows your weakness. He knows what you're vulnerable. He knows where you go and what you do. And my friend, I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing here, the devil is after you. Hallelujah. I think about Israel. Israel, on their journey, was plagued by their adversary, the Moabites. The Moabites were a distant kin to Israel. You say, I didn't know that, Brother Shaw. I thought they were enemies. Yes, they were. They were very severe enemies. But did you know that the tribe of Moab came from the loins of Abraham's nephew, Lot. Now, Abraham left, and I think I mentioned this last night, as God told him to come out from among your father's house, leave everything, but Abraham didn't leave everything. Abraham and Sarah were childless. Now think about this for a minute. They were childless. Lot's father had died. So Lot was fatherless. So it just seemed a natural thing that I'll take this little old gawky, not head of a boy, I'll take him with me just to keep him out of trouble and teach him a few things because he's a real moron. <laughs> Try to make something out of him. But that's what happened. Now, let me tell you something. As they got on into the land and into their journey, Lot started to prosper, started to increase, and the herdsmen began to struggle and strive. And Abraham came to him and he said, you know, that's not right that we should be fighting among ourselves. He said, we need to separate. Yours is great, mine is great, and it's just not working together. He said, look around, everything, anything, whichever way you want. And you know what? There was a seed in Lot. Now let me tell you something. Lot had long before abandoned his faith in Abraham. There was some elements working. Now he may have thought, I can handle this. I can handle it. But I'm telling you, my friend, the devil's subtle. Listen, do you know what? Nobody ever plans to fall. Nobody ever plans to fail. These little girls that on graduation night end up in the back seat of a car, they didn't plan on getting pregnant. But it happened. These little boys out here that get on drugs and get hooked on pornography, they didn't plan on it. They didn't get up one day and say, well, this is the day. Mark it down on the calendar. I'm going to go get high, get me some drugs, or I'm going to get hooked on pornography, or I'm going to go out and do something. You don't plan things like that, folks. But the devil works it out to where it evolves subtly, subtly. 
very crafty, very cunningly. And so that seed was there, and he began to look to the well-watered plains that was over towards Sodom. And the first thing you know, instead of living in a tent, he raised up his tent, and he moved over to those well-watered plains, and he was doing good, but he pitched his tent. If you study in the Bible, he pitched it to where when he was sitting in there in the heat of the day, he could still look out towards Sodom because it was in him. The devil had planted a seed in him, and it was growing. The longer you entertain thoughts, the longer you entertain these feelings that you know's not right, they're going to grow. Have you ever heard someone say, I'll tell you one thing, buddy. The more I thought about it, the madder I got. Well, quit thinking about it. Because if you get too mad, you're going to get in trouble. Amen? You fellas better quit thinking. Your wife will knock your block off. <laughs> but he was thinking about it all the time. And then the next thing you read, Brother Lester, he had already moved over into Sodom. He had already traded his tent in for a permanent dwelling. He's now living in a house. He's now a resident of Sodom. Now he's become a judge. He's developed friends. He's got popularity. He's got prestige. He is somebody. He's gaining great wealth. He is a man among men in this wicked, ungodly, God-despised situation. One day you know the story. The angels came down. They said, we're getting ready to destroy it. Long story short, he said, Lot, you've got one opportunity to go tell your married children to get out and come on. Lot wove his way through the blind, raging mobs, got to his children, got to his sons-in-law, and told them, said, you've got to leave. God's going to destroy this city. God's going to destroy this wickedness. And they mocked and they made fun of him. He had no testimony. He had no witness. They didn't have any confidence in him because they knew that he lived just like the rest of them did. He went back. The angels got him, his wife, and his two little daughters that were virgins, the Bible said. And they took him out. And they told him, they said, whatever you do, you get outside the city, don't look back for nothing. Do you know what happened? Lot's wife, for some strange reason, for whatever, I don't know, she turned and took one last glance and she turned to a pillar of salt. Did not Jesus say, no man having put his hand to the plow and looketh back is fit for the kingdom of God? What he was saying is, uh, I can't use you uh, if you're constantly looking back, uh, constantly being drawn by the things of the world. You will never be successful. You will never be able to function uh, and fulfill my purpose for you. You can't keep looking back all the time. You say, but Brother Shaw, just I, I thought of this. I thought, hey, Jesus said, when you come to me, Turn it all loose. Let it all go. You focus on me. Now you're walking with me. You keep looking forward. Don't be looking back. One of the things that hindered Israel the most when they were in the wilderness, every time a problem came up, they were looking back. 
Amen. They couldn't get out of their mind the leeks, the garlics, the onions, and all of the things over there. What is there about us? We are so prone when we reflect back, we never see the bad. Huh? All they could think about, oh, wouldn't you like to have one of them Vidalia onions? I seen a guy on television, he used to do a commercial, he'd eat that thing like an apple. I thought, oh, Lord. <laughs> but you know, that's what they, they could think about. They never thought about the bondage. They never thought about the beatings. They never thought about being slaves. They never thought about the taskmasters uh, uh, and all of the laboring they'd done. All they could think about, oh, it was so much better over there. I'm going to tell you something, friend. If you're one of those that every time a problem crosses your path, you're constantly looking, and you mess with me, I'm going back there. You may as well go. Either that or get saved. One or the other. Because, my friend, I'm going to tell you, you will never do nothing for God. And somewhere down the road, if you're constantly looking back because of a problem, that I'm thinking about going back, you're going to stumble up and you're going to fall flat of your face. The devil wants you. And he's after every one of us. He's after our young people. I'm going to be honest with you, folks. If you're here and you're above 50, one of the major things in your prayer should be God send us young people. I've never seen a day and a time when it was so hard to find men and women that want to live and work for God. I'm just going to tell you right now, you need to appreciate your pastor. You pastors in this building, if you've got people here, they need to love you. They need to take care of you. They need to quit pinching pennies. Uh, and the Bible said a workman is worthy of his hire. Take care of them. Why? Because there's nobody to replace them. We don't have men coming along that want to make the commitment. We don't have men coming along that want to make the sacrifice. We don't have men that are willing to say, yes, Brother Shaw, I'll go here. I'll take that small church. I'll work. I'll pray. I'll get in there and love the people and build it up and make something good out of it. You say, no, I can go out here and work at Walmart. Or I can go out here and build me a tiny house and live in Colorado and don't have to do nothing. Nobody wants to sacrifice. Nobody wants to commit. It's like we're trying to rob them, Charlie, when we talk about these things. Uh, friend, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, sacrificing for God, making a commitment to God, being dedicated to God is not robbery. You're not missing anything. prodigal son I'll guarantee you that at some point when he rose up and went to his father's house and he told him father I want everything that I've got coming to me I want my inheritance and I want it now I'm going to go out and I'm going to do what I want to do I'm tired of being under your thumb 
I'm tired of being under your roof. I'm tired of doing it your way. Turn me loose and let me go. I don't know how much time passed, but I know the Bible says that it was in a pig pen in the middle of ankle-deep mud and muck and whatever else you find in a pig pen. And he had the foul taste of pig food still lingering on his lips when he finally looked up and he came to himself and he said, My Lord, of all people, how did I come to this? This, this, this is not what I planned on. This was not what I intended. This is not what I thought it was going to be. This was not where I was headed. But that's where he ended up. I'm going to tell you something, friend. The Bible said the wages of sin is death. There is no way that you can ever chase after the world and chase after all of the things of the world and ever find peace ever find true joy, ever find true happiness. The Bible said Jesus uh, talking says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. There's nothing out there. This is where it's at, my friend. This is where it's at. Did you know for a long time, Judy was just a little girl when we got married. And we've been preaching full time ever since then. And I can say, and she can say, and let me tell you something, she has not always had nice houses. We have not always traveled in nice cars. We have not even always had nice clothes. But you know what? In those days when we lived in parsonages and you could see the snow blowing between the window and the wall, we could still say, I don't. Regret a mile that I've traveled for the Lord. I don't care what you go through with, my friend. Nothing that you go through working for God is going to be nearly as bad as what you'll go through chasing after the world. The world doesn't love you. The devil doesn't care for you. You know what he'll do to you? He'll do you just like the prodigal son. He'll lead you down to a pig pen. He'll wreck your life. He'll rob your health. He'll take everything you've got. He'll make you an embarrassment. Uh, he'll make you humiliated. And he'll make you feel like the best thing I could do is go out and hang myself. That's what he did for Judas. And I'm going to tell you, he doesn't care any more about you than he does these in the Bible. Amen. The Lord loves you. That's why I'm telling you, be careful. Be cautious. Watch and pray that we enter not into these temptations, but that the grace of God rise up upon us and help us to be able to see clearly, to think clearly, and not be deceived by the enemy that's working around us. Sister Judy's going to come to the piano. I want to share with you the essential of watching and praying. It's so easy to go from victory to defeat. It's not a short, it's not a short thing. It's a progressive thing. 
but it happened so gradually. You've heard the story that I'm sure preachers have told and talked about for years, how that you can take a pan of water, you can put a frog in it, and you can turn it on gradually. And as that water gradually heats up, that frog will never flitter. He'll sit right there as the water gets warmer and he adjusts to it. He'll sit right there until he boils to death. Amen? That's the way it is. The devil knows not to move fast, not to move suddenly, but he gradually works at breaking down our resistance. He gradually works at breaking down our defenses. And so that's why that watching and praying is essential because once you get on this downward road, it will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And I'm telling you folks, it'll cost you more than you want to pay. The wages of sin is destruction. What are you telling us, Brother Shaw? If I don't tell you nothing else, I'm telling you this is a day and a time to understand that we're not invincible, that we're not old enough not to worry anymore. But if ever the church of God, if ever God's people needs to band together and pray and seek God, it's this day and hour that we're living in. I'm going to give you one quick heads up. Heads up. I was talking to a church one night, and this was the deacons, the deacons, the pillars, the men responsible, the men that uphold the pastor's hands and support and minister to the widows and take care of business and supposed to be an example. And as I talked to them, I said, what seems to be your problem? Well, the preacher expects us to come out on Wednesday night and pray. I said, so what's wrong with that? Well, my word, do you know how much it costs to heat up the building? You know what the price of gas is? We've got to drive over here in the cold. Got to get out, come in, turn on the lights, all of this just to pray. I thought, what do you mean just to pray? There is no greater activity that you can engage in than prayer. Prayer is our defense. Prayer is our rock. Prayer is our shield. Prayer is our buckler. Prayer is our direct communication with God. And I'm telling you, uh, don't believe uh, and don't listen to the devil and any deacon that will tell you, you don't need to come to church to pray. Prayer meeting. Did you know what? That's an outdated service. Most churches don't have that anymore. And do you know what I believe? This is just me. And I'll be gone in a few days. <laughs> but you know what I believe? I believe that's why, Brother Murphy, you can travel across the state and you can see church after church shut down on Sunday night, not having a thing. Don't have a light on, don't have a car in the lot. A lot of them don't even have something on Wednesday night. You say, what's wrong? I think we've lost the hunger to pray. Prayer changes things. 
Amen. We're complaining about our crowd small. We're complaining about everything's dry. We're complaining about he can't sing. We're complaining about she don't like his singing. We're complaining about all these things, and we're fussing and bickering. You know what we need? We need the machinery to be all with the power of prayer. Prayer can season. Prayer can change. Prayer can rectify all of these things that the devil magnifies and stands out so great. I want you to stand with me if you would. Praise God. Praise God. My friend, let me just share as your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. You say, Preacher, I, I didn't really get a lot out of that. Well, if somebody, if somebody was touched, if somebody was made to realize that there's a devil after them, and that one of the greatest defenses we have is the power of prayer, then I would say it's all been worthwhile. And if we've not realized anything else, we need to know that regardless of our age, regardless of our station, that none of us is invincible. And our greatest defense is prayer. If we're not happy with the church, then what we need to do is band together in prayer. If we're not happy with our neighbor, we need to pray. You got problems with your wife, you need to pray. Children, pray. Problems on the job, pray. My friend, we need to get into our closet. Here's what I told that deacon. I said, partner, you can stay at home if you want to, but mark it down in your book. The phone's going to ring. Children's going to cry. Dog's going to bark. Somebody will come to the door. The television will blur. Something is going to hinder you from praying in that home. Come to the house of God. Find you a place. Shut out the world. Pray. Pray until you feel the spirit and the power of God moving in your soul. Pray until you feel the fire bubbling in your soul. Pray until you can't pray anymore and then stay there and let God speak to you. Let God talk to you. Sometimes we want to do all the talking, but I think God would like to talk to the church some today too. I think He would like for us to turn an ear to Him. Bible says, He that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit is wanting to say. We need marching orders. We need instructions. We need reprimand. We need warnings. We need to know what the will of God is. What God would have us to do. Where we can go. Who we can touch. Who we can bless. Who we can be a blessing to. I wonder tonight, if you're here, if you'd like to join with me in an altar of prayer. I think we ought to have enough time. I think that we've got enough energy. I think that it's urgent enough that we take some time and spend in prayer. 
Say, preacher, I'm saved. Do you know anybody that's not saved? Is all your children saved? Is all of your neighbors saved? Is all the people on the job with you saved? Is all the people in this community saved? If you know one that's not saved, we need to be praying. We need to be seeking God for their behalf. Bible said to him that knoweth to do good and doesn't do it. It's sin. I don't want anything to hinder me when I stand before the Lord. I don't want anything coming up to face me that I knew to do, but I failed to do. It's an old song that says, You met me day by day, and you knew I was astray, but you never mentioned him to me. Come on, let's pray. Let's pray together. Let's ask God to help us as a church, to help us as an individual. God, I don't want anyone to slip through my fingers. I don't want to see anyone lost. I don't want to be overcome by the snares of the enemy. Destroy my testimony. Ruin my life. Rob me of my family. Lord, I don't want to be one of those that says, oh, 